Well, let me invite you uh, this morning to turn in your Bibles to Titus, the book of uh, Titus, which you will find in your New Testament. So it's a small little book. It's easy to miss. Maybe find the book of Hebrews and then just work your way backward a little bit and you will come upon this little gem called uh, Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. Today uh, marks the beginning of a short series that we're going to be doing through the book of Titus. This book has been uh, on my heart in recent uh, months for several reasons, and I think it's going to prove most beneficial for us as a congregation to work through this book in the coming weeks and to receive all that God has for us in this book. Uh, Paul's epistle to Titus is a short letter that is loaded with practical insight. And I think it, it actually seems specifically tailored by God to speak to the modern church in the particular moment that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, in this book, we learn about the importance of the local church in God's economy. We learn about the importance of godly men serving as leaders in the local church. Uh, we learn a meaningful portion of the vital role that women play in the church. Uh, we learn how to view our brotherhood in Christ as more important than our ethnic identities that maybe once separated us. We learn about the importance of taking a firm stand against things that destroy families. We learn about how to deal with smooth-talking heretics, and there are a few of those today. Uh, we learn about how to posture ourselves toward foolish people in our society and we learn about how central we must keep the gospel and the grace of God uh, in our lives and in our ministry. You think any of those things have any application to today? They do. Maybe lately it seems to you that the world has gone crazy. Maybe you've been left feeling stranded on an island of fools. And if so, you could probably identify with the people in the church on the island of Crete. Imagine living on an island where someone has described the inhabitants of that island as always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And imagine that those words were not just some stereotyped portrayal typed out by someone venting on Twitter. Imagine that God himself hears that description of the people of Crete and says, this testimony is true. And here you are stuck on this island with these kinds of people. How happy would you be on that island? And how would you posture yourself toward the people of that island, especially given the fact that you used to be exactly like they are? How hopeful would you be for your church on such an island? Is it even possible to have a solid church in such a place as this? Also, imagine that you never had dreams of being on that island in the first place. 
but you ended up there because you went on a short-term missions trip that turned out to be long-term because the leader of that trip asked you to stay behind and help out the church while he traveled on elsewhere. That's literally what happened to Titus. We learn in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, that Paul had left Titus behind in order to set in order certain things in the church that were in a state of disarray. And our calling from Christ is actually not too much different than that. There's a sense in which Christ has left us behind here on earth because there is work for us to do in the church and in our world. And a book like Titus speaks volumes to us about how we should go about doing that. And Paul wants to teach Titus these things and all of us. But first, he wants to introduce himself. And as we launch into this book uh, this morning, I want us to spend our time looking at verses 1 through 4 of Titus chapter 1. It's been a long time since I have preached on only four verses to you guys, so... Looking forward to this. Listen to Paul's words to Titus as he begins this letter. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. As we look at these opening verses of the book of Titus, the first thing that we notice is how long this salutation is taking up all of verses one through four. Some English translations treat all of verses one through four as one sentence. And the kernel of the sentence is Paul to Titus, or you could supply the verb. Paul is writing to Titus and everything else in those verses is attached to that kernel that serves to amplify on how Paul sees himself, how he sees Titus, and what his motivations are in writing this letter to Titus. It might surprise you to know that this opening salutation here in Titus in verses 1 through 4 is longer than the salutations that we find in 1 Timothy And in 2 Timothy, in fact, apart from the book of Romans, this is the longest salutation found in any of Paul's epistles. And it's thick with gospel pathos and purpose. And it's going to reveal volumes to Titus from the very outset as to where Paul is heading in this letter, what's driving him as he writes this letter to Titus. Every once in a while through the course of mine and my wife's marriage, my wife has approached me 
in a particular way. And she has said, Milton, I love you, but I'm going to say something to you right now. And I don't want you to get mad. I don't even know what's coming yet specifically, but I already know to duck, right? I got a pretty good idea of what is about to be said because of the way that she has approached me. Well, with this introduction from Paul, Titus can, from Paul's approach to him, get a pretty good idea of what is coming and what is driving Paul as he speaks. Also, keep in mind that Paul is not writing these words here simply for Titus's benefit, but for the benefit of the people in the church on the island of Crete. Paul is not writing this letter primarily to just tell Titus things that Titus did not already know, but actually to give Titus written apostolic authorization to do the things that he needs to be doing so that the Christians in the church of Crete would know that the instructions in this letter are things that the Apostle Paul wants Titus to be doing. In fact, listen to what the commentator Linsky says, describing what Paul is doing here. He says, he who here describes himself in this introduction at such length lends his powers to his genuine child to act for him in the matters contained in this letter. Some people might challenge Titus and might at least question this or that which was done or taught by Titus. Well, here is Paul's own letter, which settles things with finality. That's what Paul is doing in this letter. And this is why Paul begins with such a hefty apostolic introduction when someone is going to push back at Titus for doing something that he's doing or teaching something that he is teaching, Paul wants Titus to be able to pull out this letter and point to a chapter and verse within it and say, I have Paul's authorization to teach and to do these things. And Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ himself. So this letter is being written for Titus's benefit and for the benefit of all those that Titus is seeking to lead. And it's written for our benefit too. But first things first, Paul approaches Titus in these first four verses. These verses are beautiful verses in which I think we can identify six features of Paul's approach to Titus at the beginning of his letter to him that represents, I think, a rich gospel approach that will teach us much about how we approach the people in our lives that we are called to relate to and minister to. And that's why we're entitling this message, A Gospel Approach. The first feature that we observe in Paul's approach to Titus is that he approaches him with a sense of his own call as a slave apostle. He approaches him with a sense of his own call as a slave apostle of God and of Christ Jesus. Observe the self-descriptions that Paul gives at the very front end of his letter. Verse 1, 
Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word that is translated bondservant is the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Paul begins the letter by describing himself, introducing himself to Titus as a slave of God. And in describing himself in this way, Paul is revealing who his boss is, God. And he's telling us more and telling Titus more than simply that God is his boss. I mean, we all may have a boss at work who can tell us what to do when we're at work, but our boss cannot tell us what to do when we're not at work, right? But someone who is our master can control all of our lives. And that's who God is in relation to Paul. Paul is not God's employee who works 40 hours a week for God. He is God's slave, which means that God owns him. God owns every hour and every minute of the day and every fiber of Paul's being. And Paul's self-description here at the beginning of his letter also means that every word that Paul is about to write to Titus in this letter, he's going to be writing as a slave of God who is seeking only to do God's bidding entirely. And referring to himself as a slave of God, Paul isn't just revealing something about how he sees himself in relation to God, but he also reveals something, I think, about how he sees himself in connection with the long line of men throughout history, who were also God's slaves or servants, depending on how English translations capture what is said. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 24, God refers to Abraham as my servant, my slave, Abraham. In Joshua 1, 2, God refers to Moses as Moses, my servant, or slave. In Joshua 24, 29, God refers to Joshua as the servant or the slave of Yahweh or the Lord. In Jeremiah 7, 25, God refers to all of his prophets as my slaves or my servants, the prophets. And here is Paul at the beginning of his letter to Titus, taking his place in this long line of succession, referring to himself also as a slave of God. And there's something else here too. In referring to himself as a slave of God, Paul is voicing something that he actually shares in common with Titus and with every Christian in the church of Crete. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, Paul speaks of all Christians as having become enslaved to God. Same Greek word that Paul uses in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. This means that Titus is a slave of God. Every Christian on the island of Crete is a slave of God, which means that Paul is beginning his letter here by identifying himself based upon what he shares in common with all believers in the church. We are all servant slaves of God. And this is how Paul chooses to identify himself out the gate. Paul clearly is not just an apostle trying to 
throw his weight around looking for ways to identify himself that distinguishes him from other people. He's a fellow slave of Titus, a fellow slave to the Christians in Crete. And Paul is reaching out to Titus based upon that common identity that they all share. But then notice how Paul describes himself also as an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is what sets him apart from Titus and the Christians in the church of Crete. Jesus Christ confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and he saved him and commissioned him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul has been living his life in obedience to that call over the last 30 years of his life up to the time of writing this letter. Paul, the apostle, ranked right up there with the other 12 apostles of Christ. He had authority from Christ to preach the gospel, to plant churches, and to provide authoritative teaching to Christians everywhere. And his teaching had to be obeyed. To receive instruction from Paul was to receive instruction from Jesus Christ himself. And to disregard Paul was to disregard Jesus himself. In calling himself an apostle of Jesus Christ here, Paul is not trying to pat himself on the back or draw attention to himself. He's actually, guys, seeking to honor Titus and the church of Crete with his apostolic attention. Think about this for a minute. It's a remarkable thing that Paul, the apostle, would take time to write a letter to Titus acting in his official capacity as an apostle of Christ. The church on the island of Crete is a younger church than the one that Timothy oversees in Ephesus during this very time. The mission field in Crete is more isolated than the field in which Timothy was working in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a leading city in Asia Minor and was at the crossroads between Europe and the church to the east. So it's no wonder that Ephesus became a a leading church in the first century and in the centuries that followed a church that big dogs like Apollos and even according to church tradition, the apostle John spent time at. Some even suggest that the gospel of John was written when John was in Ephesus. There were church councils in Ephesus even up until the 5th century AD. But the church in Crete, on the island of Crete, never attained to the gravitas of churches like the Ephesian church. So this is a big deal for the pastor, essentially, of the church of Crete, to get a letter from an apostle of Christ. A letter like this would let Titus know that his work on this isolated island of Crete is important to Jesus. It would let the Christians in the church of Crete know that Christ deems their church important to him. Important enough for Christ to inspire a letter from the apostle Paul to the man who is leading their church. 
And little could they have imagined that this little letter being written by Paul the Apostle to Titus would be studied by Christians 2,000 years later. Here we are gathered 2,000 years later. We're studying this book. They could not have imagined. Keep in mind also that in saying the words Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul is putting his apostolic stamp on every instruction that is contained in this letter. If anyone is going to challenge Titus on anything that he is doing in the days to come, Titus can point them to this letter as his apostolic authorization, an authorization that comes from Jesus himself. So trust me, Titus is really happy to see the word apostle here in the first verse of this letter. So Paul begins this letter to Titus by describing himself with these two titles, but he communicates more than this, which brings us to the second feature of Paul's approach to Titus in this letter. Number two, he approaches him with the aim of serving the faith of God's elect. He approaches him with the aim of serving the faith of God's elect or God's chosen Paul says, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the faith of those chosen of God. In other words, as a slave apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul is saying, I do everything that I do for the faith to serve the faith of those who have been chosen of God. This expression Those chosen of God speaks of those who are the elect of God, those whom God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Everyone who is chosen of God ends up coming to Christ and choosing Christ. But Paul does not refer to such people as the choosers of God. He describes them as those chosen of God. The vibe here is the same as what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16, when he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus could speak the same way to you and to me who have believed in Jesus. God has called us to himself. He drew us to himself with the cords of his love. He did such a work of regeneration and grace in our hearts that at the moment of conversion, we eagerly chose him. And then upon choosing to believe in him, we came to discover that the only reason we chose him is because he first chose us. It is so sad to me that this doctrine of God's election has become a lightning rod for theological argument through the centuries And I get some of those difficulties, but this is in fact a beautiful doctrine that assures faithful, struggling believers that their salvation is all of God from beginning to end. And we need to know that, right? Boy, I'm so glad it doesn't depend on me. I remember John MacArthur saying, if we could lose our salvation, we would. But our salvation is all of God from beginning to end. This is a doctrine that should make us grateful 
and humble rather than proud. If we have believed in Christ, it's not because we're smarter than other people, but simply because God sovereignly chose to save us and his gracious sovereign choice of us is the first cause of any choices that we ever make for him. And Paul is telling Titus that his mission as an apostle and his mission in this letter is to serve the faith of those who are the chosen or the elect of God. Paul never made it his goal to establish churches for the non-elect. It was never his goal, but only for the elect. And you know who the elect are by watching who believes in Jesus and happily becomes his slaves. And Paul's mission as an apostle of Jesus Christ was to faithfully preach the good news of salvation through Jesus in order to be God's instrument to awaken faith in those who are chosen of God so that they might be saved through faith in Christ. And then once they were saved, Paul's goal as an apostle was to nurture their faith so that their faith might become fruitful and enduring, persevering to the end for the glory of God. This is Paul's purpose. This purpose is driving him, even in writing this letter to Titus, every instruction, every warning that he will be giving to Titus, every instruction in this letter about how to order the life of God's people in Christ's church, every instruction about how to relate to others who are not yet saved, every instruction about how to deal with heretics is going to be delivered by Paul in this letter in order to serve the faith of those who are chosen of God. That was his laser aim in all that he did. To serve that end well, though, Paul needs to do something else. And this brings us to the third feature of his approach to Titus in this letter. Number three, he approaches Titus with the aim of fostering knowledge befitting to godliness. He approaches Titus with the aim of fostering knowledge befitting to godliness. Paul says in verse one, for the faith of those chosen of God and for the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul's aim was to nurture faith in the elect, and this faith was tied to the knowledge of the truth. And the truth that Paul is speaking about is the truth that is taught in Scripture. Truth about God, truth about man, truth about our lost condition apart from Christ, the truth about the salvation that God has provided for us in Christ. Paul says here that everything he does as an apostle is for the knowledge of the truth. The word translated knowledge here is an intense word. It can be translated as true knowledge or true recognition Paul's goal as an apostle was to preach the truth and to point out error so as to help the elect to be able to recognize the truth as opposed to what is false. If you took truth and falsehood and put it in a lineup in front of the elect of God, 
Paul would say, part of my purpose as an apostle is to make sure that those who are elect of God can identify the truth and identify what's not the truth. Christianity, guys, is a revelation-based religion. We understand that, right? At its center is a body of truth that Christians must know and we must believe or we're not Christians. God doesn't save us and then speak to us and say, well, find your own truth and embrace what is true for you and make sure you respect other people who have different truth than you. No, God gives us truth in his word. And Paul's aim as an apostle was to serve as God's instrument to bring people to the knowledge of this truth. And we need to be the same way. As William Barclay says, I love the way he puts this, the true envoy of Christ has reached past the stage of perhapses and maybes and possiblies and speaks with the certainty of one who knows. And boy, do we need that today. Now, there are some things that we should not be certain about. But Paul wanted the chosen of God to be absolutely certain about truth that is clearly revealed in God's word. And he worked hard to make the elect of God solid in their knowledge of God's truth. And it's not just any truth that Paul tried to teach people. There's a lot of things that are true and that are good for us to know, right? Like two plus two equals four. Very good. And that's true and that's good to know. To know the name of the president of Mexico is something that would be really good to know because you never know when someone might ask you who the president of Mexico is. There's a lot of truth that is good for us to know, but the particular truth that Paul was focused on making known to God's elect is truth which is according to godliness. The truth that Paul preached was truth that when understood would lead to a transformed life of godliness and help direct that life and nourish that life of godliness. Paul never wanted to preach falsehood. Neither did he ever want to preach truth simply for the sake of stuffing people's heads. He wanted to preach the truth that generated and furthered a godly lifestyle. And if you want a definition of godliness in a context like this, we could define it as a religious lifestyle that is fully shaped by gospel truth. It involves believing what is true, knowing what is true, and then living consistently with what is true, allowing no area of your life to go untouched and untransformed by that truth. By the way, notice these four important words that we've already seen so far. Faith, knowledge, truth, godliness. We could spend weeks on those four words. Those are four powerful words that speak volumes about what Paul was all about and about what he wants Titus and us to be all about. 
we're not even out of verse one. And we're coming across these meaty words. Paul is approaching Titus with this agenda of faith and knowledge and truth and godliness. But this is not all, which leads us to a fourth feature of Paul's gospel approach to Titus in this letter. Number four, he approaches him with promised hope, with the promised hope of eternal life. Explaining where he's coming from as a slave apostle of Christ, Paul further says, in or literally upon the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Paul is saying a lot here. He's telling us that the godliness that he seeks to foster in people is a godliness that is founded upon the hope of eternal life, the realized hope of eternal life that God has revealed in the gospel. By the way, don't think, oh man, I can't wait to get eternal life one day. If you're a believer in Jesus, you already right now at the present time have eternal life. You are in the living realization of the hope of eternal life because it is now in you and will continue forever. Paul is also saying here that this hope of eternal life, this realized hope of eternal life is the foundation of his apostolic mission. And it's the foundation of his letter to Titus here. It's going to color everything that he says. Paul then unpacks this hope that fuels true godliness and that drives him as he writes this letter to Titus, telling Titus that this is a hope that was promised long ages ago by a God who cannot lie. The expression long ages ago could be translated before times eternal which puts the promise before human history even began. As one writer says, this is a hope that was a promise within the Godhead when neither the world nor man yet existed. It was a promise that God made to himself within the inner councils of the Trinity before the foundations of the earth were even laid. And then it was a promise that God kept making throughout redemption history in the Old Testament. And God has now made good on that promise. Paul will later quote from a Cretan prophet who says that the Cretans are always liars. Yet here, Paul speaks of a God who is not a liar in fact, a God who cannot lie. There's nothing pseudo in him is the idea. God is always truthful. He keeps his every promise before the world was created. He promised himself that he would give eternal life to those whom he has chosen to save. And God is now doing that. God promised Eve that he would bring a champion who would crush the head of the serpent. And he has done that. God promised Abraham that he would bring blessing to all the families of the earth through him. And God is doing that. God promised through Isaiah, the prophet, that he would have his Messiah die for our sins. And God has done that. He promised that he would raise him from the dead. And he has 
done that. He promised that he would give his son a seat at his own right hand after raising him from the dead. And God has done that. God promised that he would send forth his spirit. And he has done that. He promised that his spirit would take stony hearts and make them living hearts of flesh that love God and want to live according to his ways. And God has done that and is doing that. He promised to bring people into the true knowledge of him. And he has done that. And Jesus says in John 17, three, essentially, this is eternal life. To know him, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. God has been abundantly true to his promise. And imagine, guys, what a breath of fresh air the news of such a truthful God must be to an island of people who are used to nothing but lies from their fellow man. Imagine what a breath of fresh air the good news about such a truthful God would be to people in our culture today who have been devastated by broken promises and lies that they've been told. This is truly good news of such a God. And the good news that Paul preached is news that was founded upon the confident hope, the promised and the realized hope of eternal life and all that it entails, a hope of eternal life which has come to fruition through the faithfulness of a God who has made good on his ancient promises a hope that Paul describes in the following way in verse 3. Yes, it was a hope promised by God in the past, but look at verse 3. But it was at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. This hope of eternal life became realized through Christ who came into this world and lived a perfect life, who went about doing good and who died on the cross for our sins and who was raised from the dead and ascended to God's own right hand. But then the proclamation of this realized hope was entrusted to men like Paul with a trust that came with a commandment, Paul says, to believe it and to preach it. And this commandment came from God, a God who Paul says is our Savior. Paul is saying to Titus that God is such a Savior that he sent his son to the earth to die for us. He is such a Savior that he has placed the proclamation of the gospel into our hands and commanded us to tell the world about the salvation that he offers to sinners who Believe in his son, Jesus. The same gospel that Paul was entrusted with is the gospel message that I've been entrusted with and you've been entrusted with. And this gospel comes with a commandment, and that is to believe it, to let our lives be shaped by it, and a command to declare it to people who need to hear it. This is what drove Paul in his ministry, and it's with this goal that Paul is now approaching Titus at the beginning of his letter to him. But this is not all that Paul does. 
And this leads us to the fifth feature of Paul's gospel approach to Titus in this letter. Number five, he approaches Titus with a deep appreciation for him as family. He approaches Titus with a deep appreciation, a deep embrace of him as family. Listen to how Paul describes Titus, the man to whom he is writing. Verse four, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Paul's language here reveals that evidently Paul had led Titus to Christ at some point and that Paul had taken him under his wing and had become a spiritual father to him. And wonderfully, Paul describes Titus here as my true child in a common faith. And it's so easy for us to just skip right over that and lose sight of how amazing it is for Paul to be able to speak to Titus in this way. Keep in mind that Paul was once an arrogant Jewish Pharisee who wanted nothing to do with anything Gentile. Paul was once as racist as they come. And he no doubt joined with other Jews in thanking God every day for not making him a Gentile. Yet Jesus saved Paul and called him to preach the gospel to whom? To Gentiles that he once despised. And among the Gentiles saved through his preaching is Titus, whom we learn in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, was an uncircumcised Gentile. And here is Paul, a full-blooded Jew, writing to this uncircumcised Gentile Christian, and he speaks of him as my true child in a common faith. Paul seems to relish how he and Titus are related in Christ. And how Titus is not merely like a child in the faith, but that he is a true child in a common faith that they both share. I love what R. Kent Hughes says on this score. He says, among conscientious Christians, even the barriers of racial prejudice, national hatred, and ancient antipathies wither when the realities of grace blossom. Paul looks past the ancient antipathies between Jews, of which he is one, and Gentiles, of which Titus is one, and says that they are of the same family and faith. That's astonishing. Paul has experienced an amazing work of grace in his heart, And his heart now redeemed by the blood of Jesus is embracing Titus as his true child in a common faith that they both share. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul refers to Titus as my brother. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 23, he refers to Titus as my partner and fellow worker. And here in Titus 1, verse 4, he refers to Titus as my true child in a common faith. What a change has been wrought in the heart 
of Paul. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has accomplished this change. You know, we live in a divided world that is becoming more and more divided, I think, by the day. Old animosities are rehearsed and nurtured by people who have much to profit from the anger that they foster. They foment fear and hatred because they have much to gain from divisions between classes and between ethnicities of people. How do we combat racial and historical divisions that plague us? That's the question we all should be asking if we care about our society. How do we combat racism, the racial and the historical divisions that plague our culture today? We do so through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The single best weapon that can literally deal a death blow to racism in the human heart and ethnic hatred in the human heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul used to hate Christians and try to destroy them Now he's one of them. Now he is a Christian advancing the cause of Christ. Paul used to hate Gentiles and he wanted nothing to do with them. He didn't want to touch anything that had even been touched by a Gentile. And now he ministers to Gentiles and with Gentiles. And he's embracing Titus as his child, true child in a common faith. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has made this difference in Paul's heart. That's an amazing thing to witness in a verse like this and seeing the way this once proud Pharisee is speaking about his relationship with Titus and seeing this on display here should renew our faith in the power of God in the gospel to transform our heart and relationships. When we were in Israel several years ago, we met with some Palestinian Christians in the city of Bethlehem. And they were talking with us about how, what their relationship was like with a Messianic Jewish congregation in Jerusalem, a couple miles away. Politically, they were on opposite ends of the spectrum and had a lot of historical reasons to despise one another. And yet, these Palestinian Christians and these Jewish Christians several times a year would have joint church services to celebrate the Christ that they believed in and to celebrate their unity in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. They looked at one another, Palestinian and Jew, and said, we are brothers in Christ in the deepest of ways that transcends hundreds and thousands of years of history of animosity. And guys, it's this gospel that we have the opportunity to deliver to the people of our culture today. It's this gospel that has Paul right now embracing Titus as precious family in a common faith. And with Paul having so much goodwill in his heart toward Titus, we're 
able to observe one final feature of his gospel approach to Titus, and that is he approaches Titus with the benediction of grace and peace. Paul's heart is just overflowing toward Titus. He wants him to have everything from God and Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He's pronouncing this upon Titus. He's saying we've got the same Savior. He is our Savior, mine and yours. And what I pray and wish for you, Titus, is grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This word grace speaks of undeserved favor from God through Christ, and it includes every gospel blessing that could come to Titus as a manifestation of that favor. It's grace that comes from God as Father, Paul says, and it's grace that comes from Christ Jesus as Savior. It's the grace of a father towards his children. It's the grace of a Savior toward those whom he is saving. As Paul begins this letter to Titus, he wants him to know that his heartfelt desire for Titus is that he would experience grace from God the Father in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking as an apostle when he says this to Titus, meaning that this is an expression of the heart of Jesus himself toward Titus. Paul knows that Titus is going to need such grace and peace to do his job well. He knows that Titus is going to need grace to stand up and to do some of the hard things that he's going to be called to do in this letter. And here Paul is wishing upon Titus every grace to do all of that. But Paul is not content to just wish grace upon Titus. He also wishes upon Titus peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus, our Savior. This peace speaks of more than just the absence of strife between Titus and God. It speaks of more than just the absence of turmoil in Titus's heart. It also speaks of the presence of wellness, the presence of wholeness, the presence of a rich abundance of wholeness and flourishing from God and from Christ Jesus. It is a peace that God gives as a father to his children. And it's a peace that Jesus gives as a savior to those whom he is saving. Paul knows that Titus is going to need God's peace and abundant supply to do his job well as a pastor of this church on the island of Crete. Titus is not going to be much good to anyone if he is not experiencing the peace of God in his heart. A man whose heart is not at peace, a man whose heart is in turmoil, is a dangerous man, actually, who is not much good to anyone. He's a pugnacious and angry man who's not even fit for ministry. A man with no peace in his heart will also be an anxious man who won't have the bandwidth to even serve others or to love them well. A man who is not finding his peace from God, his Father, and Christ Jesus, his Savior, is a man who's going to try to find that peace through other means. 
through status or through approval from others. Such a man will be a needy man, a clingy man, a wishy-washy man who will compromise anywhere he needs to in order to gain the approval of others. If Titus is going to be a good pastor, pastor of the church of Crete, he's going to need to experience every grace and every peace from God through Christ. And so Paul prays here in this benediction that this grace and peace will come to Titus from the only place it can come, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And guys, this is how Paul approaches Titus at the beginning of his letter to him. And Titus will know that whatever else this letter contains in the coming verses, it is coming from the heart of a man who has introduced himself in this way and who wishes him every grace and every peace from God through Christ. We'll stop here for today, but let me just hit on two things as we wrap up this morning. First of all, we should ask ourselves, looking at Paul's example, how do, how do we approach others? How do I approach the people in my life? What agenda do I approach people with? Do I approach them with my own petty agenda, seeking to serve the kingdom of me at all cost? Or do I approach people as a bond slave of God, seeking only to do God's will, not mine, it's not about me. It's all about him. Do I come to people seeking to nourish faith and the knowledge of the truth in them? Do I come to people? Do I approach them with the hope of eternal life? Do I come to them on the basis of a truth-speaking God who keeps his every promise? And if the people I'm approaching are brothers and sisters in Christ, do I embrace them as family? Do I value my blood relation to them in Christ through his blood of greater value than my ethnic identity? Do I approach my brothers and sisters with the heart that wishes them every grace and every peace from God through Christ? I want to encourage you guys to take some time this week to just meditate on these first four verses of Titus and let these verses enrich the way you're going to be approaching people in your life this week. Your family members, your husband, your wife, your neighbors, your co-workers, how you're going to approach your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about this is how Paul approaches Titus with this gospel agenda. What agenda do I come to people with and approach them with from day to day? Examine your heart on this and then repent of anything of self that creeps into your agenda as you approach people. Yesterday, I, I had the amazing privilege of preaching the gospel at the funeral of a neighbor who recently passed away. And yet I was struck during uh, the time before the funeral of how much my own selfish agenda started infecting 
a good thing that I felt like God had called me to do and get, was giving me opportunity to do. While driving to the funeral, I found myself thinking about me. I found myself in one moment worrying about what will people think of me if I mess up and don't do a good job. And the next moment, I found myself wondering how much people are going to like me if I do a good job. Then I became disgusted by myself for thinking such thoughts and then began thinking, I have no business preaching the gospel at all. And it felt so good for me, even while driving to the funeral with my wife, to cut through all of that mess of self and selfish agenda and to pray out loud and to confess my selfishness to God and then to review the larger story, the gospel story of what God is doing in the world and then ask him in prayer to help me and my wife to lose ourselves in serving his gospel agenda in the lives of those who would be at the funeral. And you know what? God answered that prayer. He helped us to do that. And the gospel went forth yesterday. And I discovered once again that I am the freest and the truest version of myself when I get completely lost in God's agenda in the gospel agenda of serving God's gospel purposes in the lives of others, just like Paul is modeling for us in these verses today. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, I, I hope you've seen a beautiful picture of God the Father and Christ Jesus, his Son. I don't know all who have lied to you in your life, but I know that God will never lie to you. I don't know how many broken promises you may be reeling from even right now, but I know that God is a promise keeper. Maybe everything else you believed in has disappointed and betrayed you, but I know that God will never, ever betray you. God keeps his promises, even if it means sending his son into the world to get crucified on a cross so that you can have atonement for your sins and be made right with him if you would believe in him today. Who else has loved you like that? Who else could love you like that? Who else is like Jesus who literally died to be your savior? He died to be your ultimate promise keeper. Before the earth was created, God promised himself that he would give eternal life to sinners. And perhaps that's why God even brought you here today. And if God is working in your heart and you feel him drawing you to himself, I would plead with you to join together with us in believing in him and allow him to fulfill his great promises in your life too. Please do that. Let's pray together.
Lord, we thank you for the grace that you give to us in giving us life and drawing us to yourself and saving us. And then even after being saved, Lord, there's so much of self that just keeps creeping up. And if we're really, really honest, if if we were forced to write a salutation in four verses that honestly described what our agenda is in approaching people in our life, it would look very different than what Paul writes here in verses 1 through 4 of Titus chapter 1. But what we see here is beautiful. This is a man who has lost himself. He's swallowed up in your will. He's a slave of God. Life is not about him. It's all about his master and his savior. And he's being driven by a gospel agenda in all that he does and everyone he approaches. And as he approaches Titus in this letter, help us to approach the people in our life in a way that is reflective of these very sensibilities that we see written here. It is when we do this, Lord, that we are honestly able to discover the richest and the fullest and the freest versions of ourselves. And we're able to be used by you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give up our offerings to you this morning. We pray that you would use all that is given in this offering to enrich our capacity to serve this agenda in the lives of other people, to support missionaries who go forth through all the world with the agenda that we've seen depicted this morning. And we don't just want to give our offerings to you, Lord. We want to present ourselves to you as your slaves and ask you to use us this week. We're all going to approach hundreds of people in hundreds of circumstances this week. May our approach to people be imbued with the gospel, shaping us in every way and use us to your glory. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.